Okay. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks for joining our webinar today. Sorry for the late start. We were securing connection, so uh, we're all set. Um, we have somebody very special with us today. Really excited to introduce you to um, <laughs> Anna Marie. She is the current product manager for Yammer and also a co-host for uh, the Clearly Product podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce her to you. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Cassandra. Uh, hi, everyone. I hope that you can hear and see me. There's not a whole bunch of feedback here, so I'm trusting that little live button means we're good. Uh, so as Cassandra mentioned, I'm a product manager at Yammer, and I'm also the co-host of the Clearly Product Book Club podcast, which comes out monthly. Um, a little bit about me and what I do here, so um, and a little bit also about how I got into product management. So at Yammer, we're all very much so generalists here. So I've been doing projects on iOS, on Android, on web. Uh, I've been currently am leading the notifications initiative here, and I'm also working on some algorithms projects and uh, some search-based stuff. So there's a, a whole slew of things that we get to work on here at Yammer, and that's one of my favorite parts about being in this organization. A little bit about Yammer, we're a collaboration tool that was acquired by Microsoft in 2012. Uh, so we're a really fundamentally data-driven company, and that's one of the one of the things that's really made us very strong over the years, and one of the core reasons why Microsoft acquired Yammer, and that's going to inform a lot of what I talk about today. Uh, very much so, a data-driven culture, and now we have the benefit of a nice umbrella of Papa Microsoft uh, to give us a bit of a like runway that we don't have to worry about the financial stuff as much. So it's fantastic. Um, so a little bit about how I got into product management. So uh, I, like I said, I've been at Yammer about a year now. Uh, and before Yammer, I was at another collaboration tool called Asana. And I did a product apprenticeship there. And then before Asana, I worked at a number of smaller startups. Uh, so less data-driven environments in San Francisco and in New York. And then if you track all the way back, uh, originally I had a degree in art history and I was managing a gallery in New York City. So a completely different career path. Um, so I'm happy to chat about that. I know we're going to have a Q&A afterwards, um, and I know a lot of you might have questions there. Uh, but you can also look me up on Medium, and I write a lot about the topic. So if you look up just Anna Marie Clifton, my full name on Google, you'll find my Medium account on the first or second result. Uh, so with that, I'm going to jump into uh, some of the content for today. So bear with me while I set up the sharing here. Cool. So here we have my name. I've already gone over that. Um, and also you can find me on Twitter at TweetAnnaMarie. Um, so one of the things I want to talk about today is one of the best things that you can do as a product manager um, when it comes to A-B testing in the most effective way. So A-B testing is it's a bit of a complicated subject, and there's tons to learn about it. There's tons to say about it. Um, and some of you may be working in organizations where you're working in this way. Um, but for those of you who aren't, I'm going to give a brief overview before arguing my points so that we have kind of a level playing field. So before I get into the thing about A-B testing, let's talk about what is A-B testing. So A-B test, step two, hmm? step three, profit. Uh, so A-B testing, it's also called split testing. It's essentially a statistically valid way to go about seeing how good or bad your feature ideas are. So the idea is that you release two uh, two different versions of a feature to a random set of users, and then you measure what those users do relative to each other. Uh, it's important to note that these two groups have alternate versions of the feature at the same time, uh, and you also need enough users doing this, whatever it is that they're doing with your feature, in order to get enough data. 
so this means that you need really thousands of users, uh, many thousands of users doing any particular thing in order to split test that thing. Um, it's really important to note that it has to happen at the same time. Um, I see a lot of people get this wrong intuitively where they think, oh, I have a feature, uh, maybe like it's a sign-up flow, and it has some metrics like a sign-up completion rate. And so I want to move those metrics. Maybe I'll build a new sign-up flow and release that to all of my users and then measure the new sign-up completion rate. Uh, that seems intuitive that you had a sign-up rate before, of, say, 80%. And then you launch this new experience to everyone, and now you have a sign-up uh, completion rate of 70%. And you think, like, that tells me in a data-driven way that I lost 10% of my potential sign-ups. Uh, but it doesn't really work that way. I mean, maybe there was a holiday in France, and a lot of your users are in France. Or maybe it rained in Ohio. <laughs> or maybe someone's DNS went down. Or there's a whole slew of things that can happen that are outside of your control. And one of the core tenets of A-B testing is that you want to control for that. And you want to make sure you're not getting some kind of bias based on a time series event. So it has to happen at the same time with randomly selected users and really large sample sizes. So um, with that, I'm going to go into a little bit about our topic today. So the thing about A-B tests, to ship or to learn, that is the question. So this is back to what you can do as a PM. Um, and I'm gonna argue that there are two fundamental types of A-B test. There's the test to ship and there's the test to learn. And as a PM, you should drive to determine which type of test you're working on as soon as possible in the development process. So you can use that to make your trade-off calls and drive that development faster. So let's talk about a little bit uh, what these types are and how you can identify them and then we'll get into the benefits. So the test to ship. So something that's pretty categorical about ship tests is they're usually supposed to fix something or they are for product completeness. Uh, your head of product may come with an idea that we really need this in our product. They're usually gonna be staffed as a solo project. They may not be part of a larger body of work or a whole initiative. Uh, sometimes they'll involve customer deadlines uh, or commitments to your customers. But in general, what you're looking for when you're trying to spot if this is going to be a test to ship is if you put this in the code, do you expect it's going to stay there later or are you going to go back? And then alternatively, we have the test to learn. So the test to learn is going to be hacky in nature. Uh, sometimes it might just be a front end uh, test without any back end hooked up. It may be actually not a complete experience. A lot of times people will say it's because we want to figure something out. Um, so let's test this so we can figure out if users X, Y, Z. Uh, it'll usually be staffed as part of some ongoing initiative or area of work. And sometimes it'll be called something, something, something V1. So it's going to be explicitly uh, version one. Now, once you have thought about this and figured out which type of test you're working on, the thing that you get to do is establish a baseline for how to make trade-off calls. So when you're working in an A-B testing environment and in an environment where you are uh, working in this data-driven way, the best thing that you can do for your team to move them faster, the thing that's your entire role as a PM is to remove ambiguity and help clear the path for the, the team to work. This is, help you, this is really how you help them move as fast as possible. And the easiest way to move, remove ambiguity is to have some kind of heuristic that helps you 
decide because you're going to have decision after decision that's going to come your way. And you really want to have some framework or heuristic in your back pocket that you can reference at any given time. That's going to make people really trust your judgment and know that they can lean on you. So how does the to ship or to learn help you build a heuristic? Well, here's what you get. When you're working with a to ship test, basically you answer all your product trade-off questions by saying, will not solving this make us feel bad about this being in the product? If we don't fix this particular thing, if this idea that my engineer came to me with or this edge case or this problem, if we don't fix that, will it make us feel bad about this being in the product? Will we be embarrassed? Versus with a to learn test, you wanna ask, will not solving this make us doubt the results of the test? And that's a really important distinction because the, the amount of work that you need to put into a test in order to not doubt the results is a lot lower. You can get by, by not solving a lot of edge cases because it's not going to show up in the data whether or not that happened. And if you're committed to going back and iterating, this will save you a lot of time. So if you think about it, in the A-B testing environments, we're normally testing twice as many things as we ever end up shipping. So on average, we want to have four or five of our tests fail for every four or five tests that succeed, right? So that's a really high percentage of our tests that we expect to lose. We expect them to be bad ideas. And that's on purpose because you want to be working on creative and innovative and challenging enough ideas that a lot of them will fail. You really want to be pushing your product that far. And if you're pushing your product that far and you expect a lot of your tests to fail, the best thing you can do for your team's velocity is validate those earlier with cheaper tests without building out a whole experiment, without being, sorry, without building out the whole user experience side of it and just building out enough to validate the next step. So if you think about possibly saving 20 to 30% of your engineer's time by making some of these trade-offs because it's not going to slow down, it's not going to make you doubt the results of the test, that's a ton of time that you get back for your organization. And that's a, like, absolute competitive advantage that you have in the space. So in the long run, it's important that you make this work for your teams. You can't always run tests to learn. You'll run a lot of tests to learn, but you can't always work that way. Sometimes you have to run a test and ship it if it wins and then move on. Everyone is always resource constrained. This is going to happen over and over and over again, that you're not going to be able to go back and iterate as much as you want. And pro tip, as a PM, you're likely to feel that you do a lot of V2s, a lot of version 2s, a lot of iteration, but your engineers and your designers are probably not going to share this feeling because the engineer's heart is breaking over the technical debt and your designers are sorrowful over all the visual inconsistencies and they feel those so deeply painfully in their gut, right? You should care about that. You actually should care about visual consistency and technical debt. But you should also care about keeping your company afloat. And that's really the thing that your team is tasked to do. For PM, if you are not producing the features that drive growth and usage, it doesn't matter how immaculate your code base is or how perfect your user experience, you won't be able to keep the lights on. Your speed is your life and your growth is your survival. Everything's a trade-off and you're going to have to make some really tough calls. So the point of using this heuristic is this ship, a ship test or a learn test is to build trust and respect with your engineers. And if you break that trust, 
by saying it's a learn test and then actually shipping it after it wins, you're going to lose that trust and you're going to end up on really slow teams because if they don't have that trust and faith in your ability, they're not going to respect your decisions and they're going to second guess everything. Everything becomes twice as slow. So in order to keep that respect, it's imperative that you don't couch a shipping test as a learning test. You're just going to burn through your credibility. Now, sometimes you can make an honest mistake. There are staffing constraints. Something will happen outside your control. Someone will leave the team. Some issue will blow up somewhere else. And even though you meant to go back, you're not going to be able to. And trust me, this happens all the time. It's really unfortunate, but it really does. When that happens, you're going to spend some of the credibility that you've worked your time building up. So make sure that you account for that buffer. So in conclusion, you want to make sure you're thinking about if the ship is to test or if the ship is to learn, that you're communicating that really clear, really clearly to your engineers and your designers and that you're making decisions that are backed up by what you're planning to do. Thank you. Awesome. Great presentation. Thanks so much um, for your time, Anna-Marie. Um, guys, we're open up for uh, the Q&A session, so go ahead and type in your questions in the chat box, and we'll, um, we'll have our answer as many as possible. So I'm going to check and see who's been um, typing questions right now. Awesome. So we have one from Saravi. Uh, what do you typically do when there are no definitive results from your test? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> there very rarely are definitive results. Um, so I'll just say that there's, there's almost never a very clear-cut case. So what do you do typically is what you're doing every time. Um, so it's a really interesting back and forth. At Yammer, we have the great fortune of working with full-time analysts on our teams. So normally with, at the end of the test, we'll see uh, what metrics moved on the global level. So this is going to be our top line metrics around uh, how many days did people come into the product? Did they create, do any of our core interactions? And so we're looking at those and seeing how, how those moved. And those typically move very, very, very little. They're very hard to affect. And that's why they're our top line metrics. Uh, and then underneath that, we're looking at the local metrics, which is did they click on the button that we added? Did they do the flow that we created? Things like that. So a lot of times what you want to make sure is when you're looking at these uh, results at the end is that not only did the button clicks happen that I thought, but also did that drive the top level growth. And a lot of times if there's a mismatch and there's um, local metrics are doing what I expected, but the global metrics are like down or flat and they're not going up in the way that I anticipated because of the narrative that we built out when we were designing this feature. Uh, a lot of times that becomes a really big learning that we share back into the org and we say, hey, like, this feature did what we thought it would do on a local level. People clicked it, they used it, they were completing the thing that we wanted them to complete. But in the end, that didn't drive like the usage and the growth and the core metrics that we were looking for. So then that, we want to kill that test. <laughs> we want to turn that off. And then we want to share that back into the org um, and spread that around the entire team. And the whole discussion around like, well, this one moved a little bit, but this one was like a little up and that one, we didn't expect that. Like that becomes a really um, avid debate in the team. And it's the PM's job to really build a narrative around like, why do we think these metrics moved in this particular way? And then based on that narrative that comes out, 
uh, make a decision for if that narrative moves the product forward or if it moves the product backwards from where you're trying to go. So it's a really, really lively discussion. Uh, we get a lot of analysts and other PMs to like vet our decisions and push back. And like, I don't think that's actually the narrative given on some things that I saw in my projects. I actually think it's because of this other fundamental aspect of humanity that you haven't thought about. Um, so it becomes a really lively conversation every single time. Always takes longer than you think. Awesome. Thanks for that answer. Um, I'm going to search. Uh, we have quite a few questions coming in, so I'm going to pick sure. um, another one for you. Um, we have one from Jacob. Neil, so you mentioned that for A-B tests, you should really have thousands of users. Do you have any recommendations for PMs with 10 to 30 enterprise clients as opposed to thousands of consumers? Sure, absolutely. Well, so one of the things about Yammer, so we're an enterprise customer and we're an enterprise product. Uh, we don't test on clients, like enterprise clients. We test on their users. So like you may have 10 to 30 enterprises with each several hundred or several thousand end users, and you can do tests on end users. You don't have to do it at like the network level. And different organizations feel differently about this. Um, I know Asana does more on the network level testing because they're more um, interconnected, like their, their graph is much more interconnected and in how um, different features affect each other within the organization. So it's really difficult to isolate user to user. Uh, at Yammer, most of the things that we test, we can isolate user to user. And so you can do that. Um, there's also, I mean, so if, if you don't have thousands of end users that you can test in an AB way, uh, then there's also uh, a lot of uh, customer-driven development that you can do. So there's a really great book written by Cindy Alvarez called Lean Customer Development which covers a lot of these topics. Um, one of my favorites is that you'll get 80 to 90% of your qualitative learnings from talking to customers in five people. Like after you have spoken to five people, on average, you'll have almost everything that you're going to learn about a particular feature. So it's actually, you don't have to do too robust of investigation there if you're doing those kinds of studies. Um, it does take a while to like, canvas these people and collect them and then... Uh, get an hour or an hour and a half of their time. So that is kind of expensive. Uh, but I would, I would investigate um, customer development uh, principles. Okay, definitely. Um, we have another one here. So from, um, from Nana, thoughts about using session replay tools when doing A-B testing? Yeah, so we don't do a lot of sessions. So Nana, I think you're probably asking about um, how many users that did A, then did B, and then did C versus users that did A and then did like Z and then C. And then you like try and map out like what their journey was along the way. Uh, we don't tend to do a lot of that. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. It gets really, really complicated tracking sessions. Um, we've built out our core metrics to be robust enough that we don't need to like measure sessions uh, in order to like think that we figured out why people are doing something. So basically that's kind of in between, like I talked about the local metrics and the global metrics and it's the PM's job to kind of tie the story between the two uh, session tracking. If you do it really, really well is another layer between those two that you can lean on. Uh, but it's really difficult technically. Uh, and it's really shaky. Like it doesn't it's like session tracking is like a little bit, um, I don't rely on it too much. And there are third-party tools that do that. But whenever you're relying on a third-party tool, you rely on like their definition of what is statistically significant. And they tend to be like really broad definitions. You rely on like their uptime. You, you have no like direct control over what that experience is going to be for your user in that way. Um, and a lot of times it slows down your load times as well on pages. So there's a lot of pros and cons there. I would say that 
it's the responsibility of the PM to be able to tie those together. And that's the skill set of being a really strong PM in analytics is like being able to, to draw the strong narratives between what users actually did in the product and what that means um, in the long run for their success. Okay, great. Definitely a really good point about what makes a, a PM a, a strong product manager. Um, let me pull another question here for you. So from Srupia, um, Priya, sorry. For a bootstrapped consumer products company, what are your recommendations of how we can get hundreds of users for getting feedback? Uh, are you looking to solicit like um, survey feedback or is this more, I'm, I'm not sure if you're asking about um, running surveys or doing like in-person studies um, or if you're looking for more just like growth tactics to get more users in your product to get data. Let's see if they, yeah, okay. We can revisit that one in, um, sure. in a few minutes. So um, here's another one. So how do you overcome challenges of explaining a product that's not yet built? How do you overcome the challenges of explaining a product that's not yet built? Um, so I haven't done a lot of this in the past year and a half. Um, but before that, I mean, again, we, we, I talked a little bit about one of the core PM uh, competencies is storytelling about data. Uh, so that's after the fact. There's also the before the fact of telling the narrative about the product. Um, so I really think that storytelling and narrative telling is a really strong competency. Um, my and, and general advice on this is start by figuring out who you're communicating with and understand like what it is that like matters to them and get to know like if you have 30 minutes to explain your product to someone, you should spend the first 15 minutes understanding what their needs are and what their realities are and then like find some nugget in that 15 minutes of them talking that you can latch onto and say, it's kind of like how you were saying, this is a problem. This is our solution for that. And like what we're, it's almost sales techniques. Um, but you basically want to make sure that you start from understanding where the other person is and then like map your story because your story is a big story and you never want to tell the whole story. You want to just like pick the parts of the story that map to where that user is or that person is and explain that. Definitely really great points. Um, we have time for one more question. So um, I'm going to pick this one from D. So how do you prioritize features that should go in an A-B test? I understand it's mostly about prioritizing and not related to A-B tests, but what feature types have you found that um, has worked for A-B tests? Absolutely. Um, so we A-B test a whole bunch of things uh, here. We, our default is we A-B test, and then if there's a really strong reason not to, then we don't. Um, so I'll give an example right now that we're working on here. We have a big, big project around being able to edit posts. So we're a communication tool and a lot of tools allow you to edit, the po edit posts after the fact. And that's something that we're building out the ability to do. So if you think about the fact that we are testing with end users in big networks, uh, if one user created a post and then edited their post and another user was not in the experiment, if they had the control experience without the edit, like the ability to edit or see edited posts, they would only ever see the first version of this post. Edited it would think that everyone was seeing the edited version that had like fixed the error or the typo or something like that. And that breaks the user experience across the board. So that's one really big heuristic around whether or not you can A-B test things. And that's if, can users interact with each other across the boundary of the A-B test, or does this feature need to be available for, to everyone so that it works? For example, like if you imagine Facebook A-B tests tons of things about how they load information in, in your feed. But if they tested the ability to like, see a friend request, 
Like I could be requesting people as my friend and they would never know that. And that just falls apart. Um, I will offer a word of, of caution that A-B testing is like a convenient default, but there are a lot of reasons not to A-B test things beyond just the product implications there. There's also added code complexity whenever you run an A-B test. Slows things down because you have to wait for the results to make a decision there. Um, it also, it, there's a lot of code cleanup that you have to do after the fact, and sometimes that's not done really well. So you really want to think very hard about if this is worth uh, what we might lose in velocity to test, or should we just ship it? And so there's a lot of things where if you aren't very concerned about it and you think it's definitively a good idea to ship something, uh, you might not even want to test it at all because that will slow you down to test it and look at it. So. Okay, very good point. Um, well, thanks again for your time. I would like to ask you one more question for, yeah. for everybody. Um, can you share your advice or insights for those that are aspiring product managers and, and want to break into the field? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I was an aspiring product manager for a couple of years. I did not, I knew that I wanted to get into product management. I was managing an art gallery. I knew I wanted to be in tech. I knew product was what I wanted to do. Uh, and I had no background to do it. So I understand I didn't I didn't happen into this. This is very, very intentional. And so there is a path toward that. And I want to be very encouraging there. Um, you're going to get way more rejections than you ever get acceptance. You're going to get 10 rejections for every time someone tells you yes. And that's even for like little things that aren't jobs that are just like, hey, can I get coffee with you or things like that. So be emotionally prepared to be rejected and don't take it personally. You're going to have to handle that. And trust me, you're going to handle that a lot more on the job than before because you're gonna get a lot of rejection from your customers for testing things. You're gonna get a lot of rejection from your engineers and your designers on project ideas that you have. It's just a rejection filled world, so deal with it. Um, so that said, the best way to get into it if you're not already in it is to do it on the side. So if that means uh, working with someone and like building a little project in a hackathon, uh, I mean, I went to hackathons and started like just, hey, I don't have any actual skills, but I can think and I can talk. Does anyone want to like work with me? Uh, and I did that a few times and it's terrifying because you have like nothing like tangible to add, but at the same time you can help everything go faster. If that's one of the core skills that you have that you think you bring to product management, you can demonstrate that in a hackathon. You can demonstrate that in side projects. You need to be hanging out with people who are making things, be that you are making things or you are working with people who are making things in your spare time. Uh, see if there's anyone you can give advice to write a medium post about, if I were at this company, this is what I would be testing and why. And then like demonstrate like one experience and then what you would change about it. You can use tools online for free, like Balsamic uh, for uh, doing like basic visual. Um, they do like wireframes and like mocks and things like that. Uh, there's a lot of free tools that you can use there. Just like start doing the work and build up a body of stuff you can point to when you're making applications like, hey, this is something I'm doing with all of my passion and all of my spare time. I want to get in on this. Um, and there are way more people who want to get into product than there are roles. So you're going to have to differentiate yourself and doing side projects is the way you do it. Awesome. Thanks again. And so everybody um, can find you on Twitter, correct? At TweetAnnaMarie. Tweet Okay, and then you have your podcast, uh, Clearly Product, as well, going on every week, right? Absolutely, and that's at Clearly Product on Twitter as well. Perfect. Um, great. Thanks, thanks again um, for your time. And, um, guys, also, if you're in San Francisco, New York, Silicon Valley, 
um, Los Angeles or Santa Monica. We host weekly events with speakers um, from all over. So we'd love to see you there as well. And you can find us on, on Twitter as well at uh, Product School. So thanks again for your time, um, Anna Marie, and I'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone.